Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hold out your hands and let me lay upon them a sheaf of freshly picked sweetgrass, loose and flowing like newly washed hair, golden green and glossy above. The stems are banded with purple and white where they meet the ground. Hold the bundle up to your nose. Find the fragrance of honeyed vanilla over the scent of river water and black earth, and you understand its scientific name, Hyrochloe odorata, meaning the fragrant holy grass. In our language, it is called wingoshk, the sweet-smelling hair of Mother Earth. Breathe it in, and you start to remember things that you didn't know you'd forgotten. That's the gentle voice of Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's a Potawatomi botanist, and 10 years ago, she wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's an invitation to join her on a journey to weave Indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teachings of plants. This sweet, powerful, and poetic book has reached and resonated with readers around the world to find belonging in nature, learn from our plant relatives, and reconnect with Mother Earth. Dance Anin Buju. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Since Braiding Sweetgrass hit the bookshelves, readers have been moved by its gentleness and wisdom. Many became inspired to take that wisdom and grow it into action. People like Dakota author Diane Wilson. When she worked on a farm, she didn't have language to describe what she was learning. But she learned to listen after reading Braiding Sweetgrass. She had found language for it. She had found language for these teachings. This was a poet writing with a botanist knowledge. Métis artist and composer Cheryl LaRondel was moved to learn the songs and stories of plants. It was a real call to responsibility. It was a real call to start to listen for another language, another layer of language that's in the land. And Cree Lakota and Scottish writer Monique Ray-Smith took those seeds and planted its wisdom in classrooms across Turtle Island. That mixture of bringing a language in a way that young and young at heart can understand, plus the illustrations, help to bridge the beautiful knowledge that's in Braiding Sweetgrass to be available for a younger generation. Today on Radio Indigenous, the giant impact of a gentle book. Over a decade ago, Robin Wall Kimmerer felt compelled to braid together plant wisdom, Indigenous teachings, and science. She put pen to paper, and the result was braiding sweetgrass, indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teachings of plants. Robin says she's not a professional writer. She's a botanist, a scientist, an academic. But her humble book of essays changed the way readers see themselves. Essays like The Council of Pecans, The Honorable Harvest, and Putting Down Roots. It changed the way readers see their relationships with plants, animals, raindrops, and each other. Ten years later, Braiding Sweetgrass has turned a botanist into a best-selling author. Robin, welcome to Unreserved. Thanks for inviting me. Um, First of all, back in 2013, when you wrote this book, what was your hope in setting it out into the world? You know, it was, to me, an invitation to think about multiple lenses on the world. As an Indigenous scientist who was feeling very hemmed in and constrained by by Western academic um, thought as the only way to think about the world, I was really excited to illuminate 
indigenous worldview and ways of knowing as another way to think about our predicament on this planet. And I go back and look at my journals from that time, you know, I was saying to myself, I want to create some medicine. Mm, that is a wonderful thing to to start out with when you're writing something like this. Um, and your book, uh, for those who haven't read it, is divided into five sections, and sweetgrass is the central um, in each of those um, segments. Why was it important for you to center sweetgrass? Well, sweet sweetgrass or wingush, as we call her in our in our language, is the dominant metaphor of the book, because in my teachings, sweetgrass is the hair of Mother Earth. And when we think about when we braid somebody's hair, you know, we're, we're, we're showing our loving care. You know, we're saying, I want you to be beautiful. I want you to be at your best. And so that metaphoric braiding of Mother Earth's hair is it is what gets me out of bed in the morning, <laughs> that, that care. And the teachings about those three strands. For me, as an Indigenous scientist, my whole life, in, in a sense, I have been looking at the world with Indigenous knowledge, with the tools of Western science, and most particularly, listening for what the plants have to say about it. And so my notion in choosing sweetgrass as the dominant metaphor was to say, how could we use all of these ways to care for the land better, but to also notice that those strands are separate. Mm. Um, Despite your claim of not being a professional writer, and I put that in quotes, whatever that means, the storytelling here in this, in this book is, is um, really poetic and, and clear and just, very intimate and touching. How did you find that, you know, natural storyteller within? Hmm. I, I wish I had a, a really good answer for that, Rosanna, but I don't know it. You know, it's, it is for me, it's one of those things where somehow the words just take over. There are times when I just feel like I was, I'm just holding the pen. Um, to me, it's, it's this combination, the energy of, of our old stories, the energy of the voices of plants wanting to be heard. And I'm also someone who is in love with language. Um, I just love the sound of words and their very particularity. So it, it's partly that love of, of language as well. Being a botanist, which is so heavy on vocabulary and language, I think I've sort of distilled as a scientist this need for the precisely right word, you know, because the part of that plant, we don't call it a little brown thingy, it has a name. <laughs> and so that that precision, that love of precision in language probably um, helps to propel that is in my writing as well. Hmm. Often when I when I speak to writers, um, they will tell me that they almost feel guided, you know, whether it's, you know, ancestors speaking through them, or in your case, our plant relatives speaking through them. Is that something that you felt as you were writing the book? Yeah, especially the plant voices. It was very, very present uh, for me. And I also was very mindful of speaking with truth through the Indigenous lens in a way that my relatives would understand that and acknowledge that, and that my science, my skeptical science colleagues could also understand. Mm -hmm. um, throughout the book, you really, there's a real strong sense of, of your cultural identity. Um, did this book or how did this book help you to return or reclaim some of your Potawatomi culture, particularly uh, when you're trying to learn, you were trying to learn your language? What, did it help you in that way? Oh, absolutely. And and it went both ways. Um, yeah, the book was, was helped by learning language and writing the book made me hungry for the words in Nishnabemuan. So there were so many times in writing the book that I would say to myself, can I say that? And the times when I was able to say to myself, not only can you, you should, was strengthening of that sense of identity as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell the story of my grandfather 
being at the Carlisle Indian School and the, as we know, the silencing that happened there. And that story often would give me voice to be able to say that voice was silenced then and now it feels like in reciprocity my responsibility to say it now. Mm. Can you dig a little deeper in terms of what you mean when you say, you know, trying to learn the language or regaining some of that language back to help you in writing the book? I'm thinking about this, what the, the, the essay in which you talk about the sound a mushroom makes when it's coming out of the ground and how that word just sort of encompasses something that science doesn't. Yes. Yeah. That, that word, um, which was, given to us all in the writings of Kiweda Nokwe, an Ojibwe ethnobotanist. You know, it, it, it's a word that means the force that causes mushrooms to come up out of the earth at night. The very fact that our people had a word for that powerful force that recognized it, you know, our, our language is a, is a mirror on what we pay attention to and what we believe about the world. So that particular word opened doors for me into what are the other forces and lives and animacy of beings around us that our language holds that Western science has no uh, language for and sometimes not even the idea of. Yeah, yeah. And can you share that word with us? The word, oh, I didn't say it. I'm sorry. The word is papoi. 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 Even the sound of it, papoi. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it sounds exactly how you would imagine a mushroom would sound as it's coming out of the ground. Yes. Last fall, Milkweed Edition celebrated braiding sweetgrass by um, sharing stories and art from people who were uh, touched in some way uh, by your book. Why do you think braiding sweetgrass resonated so strongly with people and continues to? I've, I've asked myself this same question of why, and there's a lot of facets to it. But one of them, I think, is that it's an invitation to imagine ourselves differently. I, mm. I, I try hard not to preach and to tell people like this is how you ought to be or what you ought to do. I don't like that. I don't think anybody does. But that invitation to say, you know, there's another way to look at this problem that we're facing. Here's what the plants say about it. Here's what my ancestors might have said about it. What do you think? Hmm. To me, I view it as a bit of a field trip. You know, I'm a field botanist. So most of my teaching is in the woods where we're walking around thinking, oh, let's meet this plant relative here. Let's engage with them. And breeding sweetgrass kind of for me is that kind of field trip. It's, it's to say, let's get comfortable with each other on the path. Be sure we all have snacks and a raincoat on this field trip. And then let's start going down at first a familiar path, pointing out the relatives along the way, learning from them. But like any good field trip, pretty soon you're off the path um, and, and you're starting to consider ideas and images and imagined futures that you might never have considered. And I think the invitational nature of it is what has um, drawn people to it because they can imagine themselves loving the land like that and being loved by the land as well. Um, can you think of an example where your book has, has made a difference in, in, you know, how somebody lives or relates to our plant relatives and each other? Yes. So many stories, Rosanna, people write to me all the time saying, well, I read this book and I found myself in it. And so here's what I'm going to do. One of my favorites was a, a person who worked in the financial industry on Wall Street and wrote and said, after I read The Honorable Harvest, I said, I can't do this anymore. And so he took his wealth and invested in an organic farm where he lives now. Folks who have started outdoor preschools, folks who have written music. I mean, just so many things. You know, the book is an invitation to to reciprocity, to give your gift to the earth. And people are saying, okay, I will. 
This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My guest today is Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. The book is a collection of essays, including the Honorable Harvest that she mentioned just a few moments ago. As written by Robin, that honorable harvest is rules of sorts that govern our taking, shape our relationships with the natural world, and rein in our tendency to consume. We'll have more plant teachings from Robin later in the show. But as we just heard, her book has inspired a decade of readers. One of them is Cheryl LaRondell. Cheryl is a Métis mixed-media artist. She says, birds and the rustle of trees in the wind have a song for you. And because of braiding sweetgrass, she has a song for them. My cousin Shane Belcourt, who's a a singer-songwriter in his own right, but he's also a a film director and producer, and he was working on a new series for uh, APTN called Amplify. And he was asking different songwriters to compose a song, especially for an episode of his program, And uh, the kind of proviso needed to be that we needed to be inspired by an Indigenous event or book or film or something. And I immediately knew, I had just finished reading uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, so I immediately knew that that was the book that I would write a song for. And with this notion that I was used to listening to the land and I was used to listening to the sonics of the land but now I wanted to go and really sort of focus on the plants so it was Robin's book that just really made me you know want to do that and subsequently I was also through the process of the project Shane's project I was able to have an interview with Robin as well and to speak to her about this notion about the sound shapes of our languages uh, and their relationship to land bases and It was just so inspiring and wonderful to get to chat with her. In the section about the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, she says, What if you were a teacher but had no voice to speak your knowledge? What if you had no language at all and yet there was something you needed to say? Wouldn't you dance it? Wouldn't you act it out? Wouldn't your every movement tell the story? She says, Plants speak in a tongue that every breathing thing can understand. Plants teach in a universal language, food. Carried throughout the book, there's this notion that uh, plants have their own stories and have their own songs. I listen to land. I compose songs based on what I hear. Even so much so that I'm listening to indigenous sound shapes, my language, Nehiawiwin, which is Cree language. I'm listening to if I can hear that in the land. So when she made that sort of surmisal in her book about the plants having their own stories and their own songs, it was a real call to responsibility. It was a real call to start to listen for that not literal sound, but another language, another layer of language that's in the land. I was making a promise to the land. And in this song, so the first part is Anishinaabemowin, big thank you, and the second part, is a uh, my language, Cree. So uh, what I'm saying in the beginning of the song is Birds, I hear you. So I'm, I'm acknowledging that I already am doing this. I already hear the birds. Birds, I hear you. I, I respect and care for you all. And then the second part, 
plants, I will listen to you. You know, so it's kind of future intentive, you know, and it's a and that's when the promise starts coming in, you know, uh, um, and I will keep things clean for you. And then uh, the end of the lyrics say, and I promise, I promise, big thank you to the medicines and then I promise this mother I promise this mother so it became really powerful for me because you know word is like contract you know when we when we utter something we have to we have to follow through and so it's been a wonderful reminder you know of of I made that promise now I need to live up to that promise Every uh, time I see garbage, I pick it up and I uh, try to use, uh, you know, like non, um, uh, non or biodegradable products and I, I recycle and I have an organic garden and, you know, so just in every way possible, just it's a constant reminder in every possible way. How can I do this in a cleaner way for the environment? I think there's other things too, just the notion of trying to have a, a daily relationship with land, that uh, this is also part of the promise. It's part of this negotiation of listening, caring, cleaning, you know, and so it's kind of this ongoing promise. Cheryl Rondell is a Métis artist based in Edmonton. My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now. Her song? Gichi Megwich Maskikia was inspired by Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. We couldn't make a show about the impacts of this little book without talking to Monique Gray-Smith. The Cree Lakota and Scottish writer took a deep dive into its pages and came out the other side with a version adapted for young audiences. Her book, Braiding Sweetgrass for Young Adults, was published in November 2022. Since then, the book has been spreading the seeds of plant wisdom in classrooms across Turtle Island. Monique, welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be with you today, Rosanna. I'm honored to have this conversation with you, Monique. Uh, Take me back to 2015 when you first sat down to read Braiding Sweetgrass. How did the book affect you? Oh, I was only a couple pages in in the prologue and I was like, I just have to sit with this. I have to put the book down and let all the wisdom on the page and also woven in between the words find their rightful way. And so I think I probably sat just with the prologue for a couple of weeks before I even picked up what was next because I would find myself doing dishes or being in the yard And thinking about some of the beautiful sentences that Robin had written, the beautiful wisdom she was sharing, and how I felt like there was a part of me from my childhood that was waking up again. Why did it affect you so so deeply? As kids, my parents had my sister and I outside on the land all the time. And we didn't use those words, let's go out on the land. It was just simply what we did. Harvesting wood, harvesting berries... Uh, building fires, eating hot dogs by the fire, or smoking trout. It was how we were. It wasn't necessarily that it was like, this is what we're going to do today. It was simply what was done. And through time, there was a part of me that was like, oh, yeah, now I remember. You know, you'd reach for the Saskatoons, and they wouldn't come, and my dad would say, not yet. And that was all that was needed to be said, right? It wasn't a a big teaching that went with it. It was just simply, not yet. So Robin's words and all that she had woven simply into the prologue was waking parts of me up in a very deep way. Mm. And so there you were, 
this this book in front of you, you're, you're adapting it for young people. Why did you think it was important that it should be in the hands of a younger audience? Mm, I think with all that's happening in our world right now, and especially with the state of the climate chaos, that young people are feeling afraid, young people are feeling vulnerable of what we, our generation and previous generations, have left for them. And they're concerned. And so in braiding sweetgrass for young adults and braiding sweetgrass, there are some answers about what we can be doing. And that's what I wanted was a, a place for them, maybe not to find the answers, but to have other questions as well, to think about, okay, what could I be doing? It could be as simple as starting to grow some food in my window, right? Or keeping the egg cartons in the winter so that when it comes time, I have something to put the soil in to start some little plants. So those little pieces for people to begin to think about, what can I do? It doesn't have to be massive. One small step makes such a huge difference. Mm. And I was feeling like, let's find ways for young people to understand history to understand indigenous well uh, elements of indigenous wisdom, the teachings of the plants, and the scientific knowledge, and the mm-hmm. teachings of the plants and the scientific knowledge was my deepest learning through those six months because there was so many words I had no idea what they meant. Rosanna, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a botanist, right? So, yeah. <laughs> How did you ensure that the that this book would be, in, you know, attractive to young readers? That it was in their voice and in their level of understanding. There were a few places where I knew instantly that needs an illustration, mm. because the illustrations can elicit so much that words can't. They can tell stories that words may not be able to. They can foster critical thinking and perspective taking. They can resonate in hearts that sometimes words get lost in. So I think that mixture of bringing a language in a way that young and young at heart can understand, plus the illustrations, help to bridge the beautiful knowledge that's in Braiding Sweetgrass um, to be available for a younger generation. And it is beautiful, the illustrations themselves. Could you speak mm-hmm. to that? How did you work with the illustrator to, to create such a complete and, and gorgeous, you know, uh, storytelling with, visu- with visuals like that? Mm-hmm. Nicole and I have done a few, thing- few projects together. And so when we were working on this, I said, I think we need to be together. So I used my own money and I went to Santa Fe, stayed with her family for a week and we sat at the kitchen table, we went to coffee shops, we were just kind of in that creative bouncing process for the whole week. And that's how we really flushed out what would the illustrations be? And not just the illustration, but what are the attention to details in each piece that you know, preschool could unpack with a Thanksgiving address, a grade 12 could unpack with a Thanksgiving address, a family could unpack with a Thanksgiving address, all different ways. So that was a really beautiful week in Santa Fe, probably one Mm. of the most precious weeks of my life. Mm, It sounds really special. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about the response to braiding sweetgrass for young adults. What have you heard from, you know, teachers, parents and, and young people about how they're connecting with the content? Yeah, the response has been really beautiful. I think that for me, it's kind of like, you know, it is that reciprocal relationship. This creation has gone into the world, created by Robin and myself and Nicole, and we're all hearing back about how it's influencing decisions, conversations in the classroom, what's being done in schools, the gardens being planted by families. You know, the other day, it was actually one of the answers on Jeopardy!, Oh, man, Jeopardy so, fame. I know, right? The question was young adult nonfiction, and it was braiding sweetgrass for young adults. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So it's it's got a life of its own, which is really beautiful. Can you share an example of how this book has reached, you know, a young person to, to you know, connect with the earth or connect with their families in ways that they, they hadn't done before? Ah, I was in Port Townsend. They had chosen the book last March as their one community read. And I was doing a talk at the high school. All the high school students were there. And there was a young person who put up their hand. And I had read a piece um, about Robin's grandfather and the pecans and stuffing them in the pants and over the shoulder. And he put up his hand and he said, 
I think I understand my family differently. And he was saying, I understand like our resourcefulness. Like, you know, my family does things like that, like this grandfather. He said, but I also understand the tenderness of the grandmother sending the notes saying, remember who you are. So that young, and he was the first question and he was kind of teary. So of course, then, you know, I was teary and the rest of the un- afternoon unfolded in a very tender way. Hmm. It certainly does, you know, as you say, unfold in a tender way, these these conversations and connections and shifts. You can almost see the the wheels turning and shifting mm-hmm. um, as they have these conversations. Um, how do you think braiding sweetgrass offers that hope that you mentioned earlier, especially to young people who are, you know, living through difficult times? I think the Indigenous wisdom that Robin shares provides answers about how could I, how can I be in the world? How can I walk in the world in a good way, a respectful way, in a way that contributes? What are the ways that my family can contribute? What can we do as caretakers of the land, caretakers or stewards of the land where we're guests upon? I think those are just a couple pieces. The social emotional literacy and learning helps hugely. I've been in classrooms where actually the civility is not always there. And so Mm. I think this book reminds us about each other, about our humanity, and it reminds us about the humanity, actually, of all living beings. Mm. Mm. One of the most beautiful stories is Witch Hazel, right? That beautiful story about kindness. So I say that with educators, like if you're having a time in your class when kindness is not happening, this is a beautiful story to share. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, the power of words, right? The power of, of literature, the, um, you know, sitting with the book and, and reading the words and letting them soak in um, is, is, is really um, special. How do you mm-hmm. think literature encourages people uh, to, to take action in their lives to make those changes and connections? I think stories, they do, they alter us, Rosanna, right? Like when we think about our history, that's how we always learned, right? Was through story. And today in this modern world we live in, those stories are in the forms of books or movies or podcasts, but they change us. When we, when we can understand somebody else's lived experience, whether that's the Robin sitting out here on my window right now or yourself, when we understand each other's lived experiences, then I'm less likely to harm and more likely to hold up. And while we often share that with children and young people about each other as humans, this book reminds us that all living beings have the right for that dignity. Mm, that's wonderful. And Monique, how has, you know, since reading the book those many years ago, uh, and then engaging with the words and then writing the the young adult version. How has has that experience changed you and how you live your life? Mm, Well, my excuse of being too busy to have a garden was no longer justifiable. (laughs) So garden, Uh, uh, growing tobacco, growing sweetgrass, harvesting sage when uh, I go uh, back to to Kamloops, to Sequepmec, where I grew up in Kamloops area. I think how we have conversations at our dinner table has changed me. My reverence for my parents and how they raised my sister and I has also been changed through this process of both reading and then adapting Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for this time and uh, for the wonderful book that you that you mm. wrote out of a wonderful book and is continuing to be wonderful in the world. <laughs> hi, hi. Thank you very much. I appreciate this gift to spend time with you, Rosanna. Ganaskaman. Monique Gray-Smith is a writer, consultant, and public speaker. She's the author of Braiding Sweetgrass for Young Adults, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, learning, growing, and creating change with the wisdom of braiding sweetgrass. The book has brought Robin Wall Kimmerer to communities around the world. 
As a writer and a scientist, she connects around issues like food sovereignty, cultural recovery, and the climate. Dakota writer Diane Wilson moves in these same circles. It's how the two became friends. When Diane first picked up Robin's book, she was working with an Indigenous nonprofit farm. Robin's book gave language to the work she was doing on the land. I had been working for on a native farm since 2008 and actually started volunteering there in 2000. So, I, you know, these concepts that Robin was articulating were part of what I was learning, this indigenous way of being in relationship with land and plants and animals and water. That was part of the work that I was doing at the farm. But what Robin's book meant to me when it came out was she had found language for it. She had found language for these teachings. And it wasn't just any old language. This was a poet writing with a botanist knowledge. And so she gave us beautiful language around these profound concepts that have the power to change the way that we live in the world. So for me as a writer, that was so inspiring. It was encouragement to move into fiction, to embrace language and, you know, as lyrical as I could create in a way of telling that story. I mean, I would see Robin places because our work overlapped and you know, these these random opportunities where I would cross paths with Robin, and there was always so much for us to talk about, from writing to, to the work that we were both doing around Native communities and food sovereignty and, you know, and then just the ongoing challenge as writers to continue to create new work. So so we maintained this connection and her book certainly influenced what I was working on, the novel, The Seed Keeper. And it was, it was a wonderful framework that helped me find language for and really grasp the importance of these teachings that I was getting through the work I was doing with seeds. Anger is a common and I think really justifiable response to the history that Native communities have experienced. But there's also that need for the healing that comes through forgiveness. And so the compassion that Robin brought to her work and that wisdom around we need to have a way forward was also something that I think really spurred me to think about what would be the way forward for seeds, for example, and what what would we need to return to in order to reclaim that relationship, that that wisdom, that what is often referred to as the original agreement with seeds, where we agreed to take care of them and they take care of us. So what would it take? to return to that original agreement. And, you know, it's not just seeds, it's, it's, a, it's everyone around us. In my own travels doing book events, I do encounter a lot of despair and a lot of just paralysis in audiences. It's like these issues are so big, what can we do about melting glaciers? And the reality is that we actually have to grapple with what's going on in our own backyards. And so to see that gift as not something that we have the luxury of becoming paralyzed over or turning away from because we've given up, we have a responsibility to those relatives. I feel like that is the challenge of our, of our day, but but we get to that place by really examining where we live. So it's, it's both holding that sort of global perspective, but also in a way that is reflected in our day-to-day -day relationship with, you know, who's outside your, your door right now? Um, what flock of 
geese are flying overhead on migration. And so there is an appreciation and love for everyone who is still here. And then that sense of responsibility. So I feel like Robin has been an inspiration to so many of us to take what we have been grappling with further, to really embrace those indigenous teachings and find ways to apply it, not only in, you know, like the food sovereignty work, but then also in our writing, in the stories that we're telling and the ways in which we we speak to groups to invite them back into this relationship. That's what Robin has done around the world. You know, my I grew up in a um, a white community. My mother went to boarding school, so my work, my writing, has been about cultural recovery all the way through. So doing this work around reclaiming relationship with plants and animals is, to me, one of the most profound ways in which we do the work of cultural recovery. I, I didn't know before I started working at the farm and, you know, reading Robin's book and doing my own work, how profound this relationship is at the heart of who we are as human beings. I would say it has changed me for the human being that I am. And, you know, still a work in progress, still trying to figure out what exactly I can do and how do we apply these teachings on a practical day-to-day way and then share that? Because that's really the, the work of the writer is to share. So yeah, I would say it was one of the most profound experiences of cultural recovery in my life. Diane Wilson is a Dakota writer and author of the novel The Seed Keeper. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. As we've been hearing in the show, braiding sweetgrass has had a ripple effect. It has moved people to reconnect to the land and also to recognize what was preventing them from connecting before. Let's get back to my conversation with Robin Wall Kimmerer on the things that separate us from the land and why, despite these barriers, we can always find our way back. There's, you know, so many reasons that we have become disconnected from land. Certainly things like urbanization, all, all of the things that fuel this, what has been called sort of the last child in the woods effect, you know, that we are you know, more connected to digital devices than we are to the land. That often heard statistic that the average school kid can identify a hundred corporate logos and fewer than 10 plants. You know, there's so much that has conspired to separate us from the land, but still we are made to be connected to the land. So we have this inherent longing for our kinfolk of, you know, feather, fur and leaves. And I, I, I think it's this, this collective awakening to what we're missing. Mm -hmm. What I hear in, in, and correspondence from people is longing, longing to belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, this was a, an invitation to returning to to the land and connecting, um, and it was a very gentle, you know, um, book in that way. Um, if you wrote braiding sweetgrass today rather than ten years ago, would that change? That's a really great question, and I ask myself that a lot because I mean 10 years ago isn't that long but the urgency of the moment that we are in the, the dimensions of the crisis were known but our houses weren't on fire 10 years ago and so I asked myself you know would I intentionally have written in a less gentle way in a fiercer way and you know I think I would have perhaps written with a greater sense of urgency, but I think it is in part that the gentleness of the language that allows people to hear it. That's something I learned from braiding sweetgrass is, yeah. is that, that that gentle, loving approach, it invites them in rather than shuts them out. Absolutely. You know, in, 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 um, we're in a climate crisis, you know, there's really 
little doubt of that. So as you said, it is urgent. What do we need to to know about this urgency, about this need to really return to, to the earth? We need to be able to not only despair, right? If we just throw up our hands and, and are in despair, um, well then, you know, that's the end, isn't it? But what I hope is that love for the natural world overcomes that despair. And, and we have to grieve the losses that we have inflicted on ourselves, on our more than human relatives. But to let that grief also be like the mirror for the love that we have for the living world that lets us say, Mm-mm, roll up my sleeves, I'm not letting this happen. And fortunately, the the living world is on our side, right? You know, our traditional teachings tell us that, and it's the plants that know how to sequester carbon, right? It's the bogs that that know how to sequester carbon. And so I hope that this look into the plant world as well helps us invest with priority in nature-based solutions to climate change. Mm. It's deeply frustrating to me to hear that that the solutions to climate change are, are, you know, all in policy and in technology. Well, they're in the natural world as well. I think that we really need to follow that guidance um, and invest in the well-being of, of the living world. Mm-hmm. Another concept in your book is um, one that comes from your grandfather. Tell us about Asa Wall and his desire to make things whole. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, Asa Wall, my Potawatomi grandfather who grew up in Oklahoma but was taken away from his family um, to go to the Carlisle Indian School. And that notion of making things whole, he lived through so much fragmentation, so much loss. And in his own family, began to arrest that loss. He created a strong family connected to the land. He made sure that we all knew who we were. So that that form of making things whole has been really guiding for me. You know, my work with the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment is a part of making that whole. When, when I would ask my dad about our language or about our ways. And, you know, he would say, I don't know, but he didn't just say, I don't know. He said, I don't know because that was taken from us at Carlisle Indian School. And that's a very different answer. Than, I don't know. And, and so that um, for me always sort of propelled this notion that if there could be schools designed to erase our knowledge, there could be schools designed to bring that back and and now to be able to um, fully bring indigenous ways of knowing into the academy is something that is rooted in my grandfather's story and the story of so many. Mm -hmm. In making this episode, uh, we've spoken to several people about how this book changed them and how they relate to the world. How has Braiding Sweetgrass, writing it, the subsequent reaction to it, speaking about it, um, continuing your teachings uh, around it, how has that changed your life? Mm. I really appreciate you asking that question because it's had a, a profound change on how I see my role in the world. Knowing that people are listening and responding and taking these messages to heart gives me a lot of courage, gives me a lot of courage to continue to speak up, to have the faith that stories matter, to have that faith that the people are listening. We are in a moment people are listening to Indigenous knowledge. Um, The way the book has made its way in the world has given me a lot of 
courage uh, and a lot of strength, um, which is necessary because, you know, like most writers, I suppose, and certainly like most botanists, I'm an introvert. I am a, <laughs> um, I, my, my happy place is in the garden, in the woods, at my desk. And so the demands that the book has put upon me, I feel an obligation to those stories. You know, I invited people to change with these stories and I can't turn my back on that process of change. I feel like I need to be a partner in that change, sort of a midwife in that change mm. as reluctantly <laughs> as it might be personally. Um, that's a very real tension for me. Um, but, you know, when I write in, in Braiding Sweetgrass, if we've been given a gift, we have the responsibility to use it. And so that guides me. Mm. And as you continue to, you know, travel across Turtle Island around the world, in fact, um, giving talks and, and spreading those sweet grass seeds, what continues to give you hope? Mm. I think that one of the major sources of hope for me lies in the response that we've been talking about, in recognizing that people do want to love the world. They want to be in the embrace of the world. They want to see themselves not just as, as consumers and takers and destroyers of the world. They want to be planters and givers. And they, they want to have an honorable relationship with the world. If, we, if they didn't want that relationship, I think all would be lost. But what I'm hearing from people with such passion is, I want to be a good ancestor. I want to be able to walk through the world and have the plants and the animals and the birds look at me with respect. Robin, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and this beautiful book. Thank you so much. Thanks for your interest. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a professor, botanist, and writer. She is an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and the best-selling author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Laura Bone Steubing, Kim Kasher, and Rhiannon Johnson. Find more on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved, on the CBC Listen app, or your favorite pod places. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.